Welcome to episode 86 of New Slang. I am music journalist Thomas Mooney, your host. This time around, I am joined by Mike Harmeyer of Mike and the Moon Pies and music producer Adam Oder. It was just late last month where Mike and the Moon Pies more or less surprised us with a new record, Touch of You, The Lost Songs of Gary Stewart. If you haven't checked it out just yet, I highly encourage you to do so right now. So basically, I think the Moon Pies are right now the best country band out there. They have the proverbial championship belt, if you will. And I think when they kind of got that belt was last year when they released the very smooth and suave and bold Cheap Silver and Solid Country Gold. And it just feels like right now they are the the best, most confident country band going. Obviously, Gary Stewart songs are right in their wheelhouse. And in a sense, like that's kind of like a return to their roots. But I think how they get there is pretty outside the box. It's refreshing and inventive. And of course, it's not just a fast and easy grab at nostalgia. It's been an interesting tightrope that they've been walking because it's simultaneously they're paying tribute to all these classic country music heroes of theirs while also trying to make their own impression on the genre. And that's what's kind of so fascinating about Cheap Silver last year and Touch of You this year. I think we get into a really great conversation about that juxtaposition, about these two records being one and the same, but also stylistically very different as well. But before that, if this is your first time listening to New Slang, please hit that subscribe button. Leave a review over on iTunes. If you want to further the music conversation, go follow me on Twitter and on Instagram at underscore New Slang. Obviously, I love music and I love talking about music. And since you're listening to this episode, you probably do so as well. If Facebook is more your style, go give a like over there as well. All right, enough of all of this. Here is Mike Harmeyer and Adam Oder. Yeah, I guess we can go ahead and just uh, start. You know, Mike, this is like our, our fifth time on here. Or you're the, you're the fifth time on here. What's the record? You're the leader now, the leader in the clubhouse. You and what? You and Bauman were tied at four. So. <laughs> oh shit! <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. Have you have you done Bauman yet for his for his record? No, I'm not yet. Um, okay, so we're, we'll be tied again soon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, there for a minute there, I was like. I think me and Mike are about to have just like our own podcast. He's just going to be like the co-host from now on. <laughs> That's what everyone was expecting. Sounds good. I'll record. I'll record. I'll just record some stuff and send it to you. <laughs> Mike's rambles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, yeah, obviously you guys just released this new record. Um, it felt like from, from a, fan and i guess media perspective it kind of just felt like it came out of nowhere you guys have been kind of good at doing that keeping it you know a little secretive and then just not having this huge massive rollout but just having a hey we've done this record and here it is guys um (laughs) do you think that like adds part of part of to the i don't know like the the magic of it the mystery of it just um here here's the record we don't have to do this incredibly long extended rollout. I, I mean, I, I think it was, and it was that way for silver. I mean, that was completely intentional, you know, uh, this one was more of a seat of our pants situation. <laughs> it definitely <laughs> but I, was. I, I, I do think that it, I do think that it has, it gives it that, 
you know, mystery or something. It's a, it's a, it's an interesting way to do it. I don't, I don't want to be the guys that like, that's how we do records every time. You know, I want to keep people guessing, even if we, you know, take a two or three months to release one, but it just so happened that the last two <laughs> were that way. <laughs> Adam. It definitely the wasn't the idea we went into it. Like, cause we kind of been working on this record for a while. Uh, we had a plan for it, which involved being in between our two European tours and having another release for Europe that would have been um, more of an actual rollout of the record. And, you know, probably putting out a single and stuff like that. And then, um, and then you know, COVID-19 happened. And our industry kind of changed. And so uh, we... You know, we're up to the challenge, and we're like, okay, what can we do? And um, we kind of did uh, uh, the Say It Simply track. You know, we had his voice, Johnny's voice, and um, the drum track. So that was kind of the, okay, if, if everybody gets a rig at home, can we send files back and forth and make a song? And we're like, okay, that worked. And so we, since we had the six songs recorded at the Gary, we picked the next four that we wanted to do. And uh, I tracked drums really quick with Kyle, and then we did the same thing. You know, there was a lot of back and forth with Mike and I for arranging the song and stuff, and then it was back and forth just uh, working on parts and stuff, and, and we immediately were like, okay, we need to have this out for Gary's birthday. And so let's do it. And we did. Which, which that was a thought before, having it out for Gary's birthday, but maybe not this one. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. Uh, because we had originally thought like maybe we were going to do that thing at um, at the Country Music Hall of Fame or whatever, in which we still I guess may do that maybe next time. I mean, we'll still be the record will still be you know out, so yep. like we could still do something for that. But I mean, that was kind of the original plan was like maybe we'll go do a release thing for Gary's birthday at the Hall of Fame or something like that. But then it just I don't know it just so happened that we could we could we had the potential to get it done for this year, so we just did it. And we just felt like we wanted to just put something out, like just another thing. And while everybody can, you know, is, is you know, we've noticed, at least in our numbers, that more people are listening uh, consistently, you know, on the streaming side of things. And so we're like, okay, well, let's just give them something new. You know, here's something new that, you know, not only that, but with Mike's relationship um, with the Stewart family and everything, it's just like it made sense also to try to, you know, the whole point of this is to spread that love and to get people, you know, seeing what's going on. Because they have merch and stuff like that, you know, and just getting people to talk about Gary again. And speaking of that, quite honestly, it was they really, really wanted it to come. I mean, ever since we started talking to them about it, I mean, they've been asking for updates like, you know, every two weeks or so. You know, so it, when we were touring a lot and working on it, I was like, well, we're working on it, but like, I have no idea when the, when we're going to be done with this thing. But they were adamant about, you know, man, they, they were excited for it to happen. So it was kind of nice to be able to actually give them something before I thought I was going to be able to. Yeah. Like, I guess like, take me back to that. Like, where did this first even come up? When was like the, uh, this like was a. Uh, I guess like the seed of this idea. When was when was that? Um, timeline wise, I mean, we started working on it right after. I, so what time? When when did we start working on it, Adam? So we did. I think John Burris 
played you some of the demos and we started talking about it in January of 19. Yeah, he came. He, okay, January 19. So that's, it was so he, I remember him coming to a gig. He came to a gig and brought it up to me. Like, uh, he'd been talking to the Stewart family, to Shannon specifically. And, you know, ha- and these songs were like just sitting around. And I think they had pitched a couple of them, like singularly. To maybe some other artists, maybe Midland, maybe Cody Jenks. I don't remember what he actually said. I remember those two kind of being in the hat. And they had never really bitten on it for some reason, or maybe it was just too, it was going to be, you know, those guys have, I guess, probably label things that, you know, require them to take so much time or whatever between things. And maybe they just put it on the back burner or something. But we were, you know, we were ready to do something. <laughs> and I, and, and I, I thought it was a great idea so i was like yeah i want to cut at least one or two of these songs and maybe put them on a record because originally we were going to make another record and maybe i was going to write some stuff in that vein and then like put some gary songs on that um but then when they sent me the songs like the whole like it's probably 20 songs in a dropbox and i was like man i think there's enough here to make like at least an ep out of it like a standalone thing so that's kind of where we started to go with that and they were all about it um you know they were they were all about the full length record thing when I brought it to them. I, I think they had any they wanted in any way for some of these songs to be released, like if, whether it was just somebody doing one offs or anything. But when I brought the full idea of a record to them, they were uh, they bit immediately. Yeah, the, the um, that's that was I guess like one of the the major questions I had about this was the were you know were these like demo tapes or like were they you know, just lyric sheets, pieces of, of a song unfinished. What was like the, was it like a mixed bag of, of, of that? Or was it all just mainly just actually like work tape demo style kind of already fully pieced together songs? It, I would say it was a fairly mixed bag. I mean, there was some stuff on there that were definitely full worked out demos. Like Smooth Shot of Whiskey was actually recorded for the second Gary and Dean Dylan record. But that got turned into an EP, so that never made it. So we pretty much had a full cut of that song available to us. And then... So there was those things, and then there was also uh, some stuff where he's just on an acoustic guitar uh, kind of making up some lyrics as he goes, like just getting ideas down. Uh, some stuff where he's calling out chord changes to uh, the bass player, uh, where like you know I don't even know if there was full lyrics because he's basically like E minor, <laughs> like in the middle of it. Yeah. So I mean it was it was it was a lot to choose from, and it covered a lot of the whole pretty much the whole span of his career as far as like when some of these were recorded. Like some of that like finished product I think sounded like it was, you know, late '60s early '70s kind of. So I mean, it was it was a it was a wide range of of stuff, and and I, that wasn't really up to me. Like I, I told I told Tommy, the guy that sent me the tracks, that I wanted basically everything that he had available that had not been cut or released by anybody. And he sent me that stuff, but he also sent me like the original cut of uh, Sweet Tater and Cisco, and the original cut of Empty Glass, and. Uh, you know, he sent me uh, some stuff that had already been cut, which was just like I knew I didn't want to necessarily do those songs, but it's awesome to have <laughs> I have those, <laughs> which is super rad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I always um, one of my buddies, right? You guys know him, Randall King. One time, 
he sent me over like a a Dropbox of old like work tapes and demos of like famous songs and uh you know written or like it was like the, you know the work tape demo style of whoever wrote the song and that's like it's it's interesting to see that that transition from those just you know acoustic cuts to you know somebody else, like you know George Strait singing it or like Joe Diffie or you know what i mean like it's it's uh it's interesting seeing that process go from those old like those just original kind of what what i guess like what the the songwriter uh just put down to what we heard on the radio yeah and that and that that makes me think of like um you know when stapleton uh cut tennessee whiskey or whatever and dean Dillon said like that's the way that he actually demoed it out was like with that groove and stuff like that so you know like when stapleton did that song he kind of went back to the origin of that work tape (laughs) nice i didn't realize that yeah and 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 uh he like I I heard this that uh, like Dylan said like Dean Dylan said that like that was the ri- that was like when he heard Stapleton's one he was like that was the original way I I had heard that song in my head. <laughs> that is so awesome. You know we we uh we started tracking this in February of nineteen like that. Mike was talking to Burris and got all that stuff and we tracked the first two songs while we tracked uh, the way. That was all in the same session, studio session. That's crazy. I didn't even realize that. Yes, I didn't actually either (laughs) until I was looking at the dates of it. And I was like, hey, wait a minute. Hold on. We did that because part of it was, too, we wanted to, we tracked two songs just to show the family, like, what we were going to be able to do and show and and be like, okay, you know, this is that, uh, this is what what we can do at the studio with with the demos that you gave us and stuff. And that was... uh, I think that was Touch of You and Smooth Shot of Whiskey were what we tracked, the first yeah, two songs I think, we tracked. I, th- I think so, too. And Because the, then the next time we did Bottom of the Pile and stuff like that. Yeah, Gold Bar Stool and everything, yeah. Right. What was the, like, what was the, the song that, you know, jumped out the most? That you were like, we're doing this 100%. To me, it was Touch of You. That was the one that, like... I was like, I want to cut that song if this record happens or not. <laughs> yeah. It was like we were going to, I mean, that was the one. And which, what's cool about that one is I had the most backstory on that one also. So that might have changed my perspective on it a little bit. Because when they sent me that, I had heard from either Tommy or Shannon that like that was the last song that he wrote with his wife. And like, you know, it held, it held so much weight to me at that point, like listening to it and knowing that. And, and, uh, you know, I just I don't know, that, and that song was kind of a fully fleshed out idea as well. So that and and it had that quintessential Gary thing to it. I mean, the the opening riff plus the melody line, like it was. I mean, that one and Smooth Shot to me were the most like quintessential Gary things. So I was like, man, that's like even if we didn't tell anybody that was a Gary Stewart song, people would be talking about that being a Gary Stewart song. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what's the? I. I you know, it's. I guess like there's been uh, projects like this in the past, you know, of like Hank Williams songs or like uh, Woody Guthrie songs. And it, I guess it seems like more of those were, you know, like unfinished songs, songs that, you know, just um, not to say like they were throwaways or like they were just forgotten songs, but like, 
you know, you could see why those songs weren't finished or recorded. These feel like they're, it's a little bit more of a, a, um, a, more of like a finished product, a little bit more of a, the, the reason they weren't recorded is due to other circumstances outside of like, because he was, he didn't want to do them. Is that what you guys kind of got to or no? I mean, I feel that way too. You know, when you, when you listen to these things that you start and then, and then after, of course, hearing some of the stories about some of these songs, you realize a lot of that was like, you know, it was label problems or like the song didn't make the cut on that record or, or, you know, you know, there were, there were Nashville problems, I guess you could call them. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. On on a lot of them, (laughs) uh, you know, and then, and then at the same, at the same token, like there were definitely those songs in there that were just ideas that he had just laid down knowing in full that he had not completed the song. And then, you know, years go by and he never got around to finishing that. They, like they had this cut demo of it. And, and they, I've got some stories like that in here that he sent me about how like, man, he just come up with an idea. They would go over to this guy, Tommy's house and they would just cut a demo. And then that would be kind of the end of that thing. Like maybe if they ever came into a, time where they needed some more songs for a record they would revisit that or whatever which is kind of what we ended up doing like we revisited some of these that were maybe not finished i mean i tweaked a couple of lines on a couple of them you know i mean just things obviously he hadn't settled on like one one line uh in that i'm guilty song i changed i changed this one line and this guy tommy uh, email me back and he goes, hey man, I heard that change and I'm guilty. And he's like, it's crazy because whenever we were writing that song, uh, Gary was trying to find another line for the, exactly the one that you changed. And I was like, well, that makes me feel good. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and, and they didn't, you know, and like they obviously knew that was part of the process. So like, I was a little bit worried about, you know, some, you know, them being upset that I would change anything like that. But at the same time, I think they seemed like, well, yeah, that was the normal process that Gary would have gone through to cut him too. Yeah, like so much of this, I feel like, as a, from a fan perspective, it, it, it adds so much um, of a mythical element to Gary's legacy and career. But obviously, you know, you guys are on the other side of that. You you keep on mentioning, you know, like the the back and forth between the family and you, and like the stories behind the songs. Does that like has this process like maybe made you appreciate like the the actual like the songwriting process of Gary Stewart and not like you know what I'm saying like I think like it's so easy to just fall in love with the songs because of like the 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 feeling in all those songs but like you know you on this side or on the other side of it does it has it made you appreciate like the actual like you know, meat and potatoes working part of it. I mean, to me, it changed my perspective on Gary wholeheartedly just because I, you know, I knew Gary like everybody else did, you know, just like my favorite honky, the king of the honky tonks, man. Like, I mean, like everything, you know, it was so much about what we were doing anyway that I was pretty deep into the Gary Stewart thing. But now, like, I'm really, like, I'm attached to his family. <laughs> and like I, I understand like you know where a lot of these songs came from and i also have a better perspective about how his career worked you know what i mean which is pretty informative to me being as we were kind of in the same kind of boat like in in, in, the, in before his career really took off you know i mean 
you know, he was kind of the outcast of the Nashville thing too and all that, you know, so like, uh, there's a lot of parallels there that I didn't really think of before that now I, I kind of understand, you know, what do you say to that, Adam? Well, yeah, I agree. Cause it's like, you know, it, it's kind of one of those before he got to where he was, he was just this songwriting musician guy that out there, you know, just playing the honky tonks all the time and writing just because that's in him. And it's just kind of like when we step back, we're like, Oh, that's, I mean, we're basically doing the same thing, touring all the friggin' time and writing every chance we get. And when, when we would get in there, we would go in and record, you know, and, and seeing and, also and the, or go ahead. Well, then that's the, the way I understand it also is like, there is a ton more of this stuff. And like, like, you know, I don't think anybody ever thought of Gary as like this prolific writer, but there's this, you know, from what from what Tommy has told me, there are notebooks upon notebooks, like just filling, like you know, file cabinets of just unfinished stuff, or you know, things that never saw the light of day. You know what I mean? So like, that really is is kind of blowing me away because like I don't, I don't have like that amount of stuff. I mean, he was he's writing he was he was writing so much at that time that like you know who knows what else is in those is in those file cabinets. And what's and what's great about those notes and stuff too is that the stories behind the songs is is some of them get into like the eras of like okay so he and Dean were writing a bunch of songs you know either for their stuff together or these songs were written together in the same batch um, because these other two him and some other songwriter were writing together you know and it's just like okay he was off tour and doing this or this one he was on tour doing you know and it's it's pretty neat to see that you know like okay this is why this song came about. You know, because this is what he was doing at the time. Yeah, and that's interesting because I didn't really put the timeline together on a lot of those things until he sent those notes. And then I see where a lot of those batches of songs came from, you know, and it kind of puts together a timeline of all those demos to me, you know, and like, and of and his career. So, you know, it was, dude, I learned a lot. <laughs> yeah, like filling in the gaps, like right, obviously right. like contextualizing a song or yeah, that's, that's really interesting. That's like, cause you know, obviously when we, when you first like start listening, like the first time I listened to Gary Stewart, it was, you know, greatest hits record that my mom had that, you know, it's just like, Oh, it's all these songs, but like you don't have any context of like how long those songs, um, like the, the how, how far apart those songs are, what was going on. You know, you're just looking at, you know, liner notes and, the, the front cover and all that stuff. But then, you know, obviously with y'all, like being able to dig in and, and get that extra, per, that extra added perspective. I think like that's so, it can add so much to a song and to someone else's career where you're able to, um, I don't know, just like understand more of like why that song was important. It was, it was definitely nice having uh, Tommy Schwartz uh, to talk to about these things because he was there for all of this stuff and he that man is an encyclopedia on Gary Stewart and knows every single thing and was there for all these stories and like he's a part of all these stories so it was almost like being able to ask Gary questions about some of it you know like this guy had an answer for every question I had <laughs> so so it was cool to be able to go through the process of recording it and to be able to get some sort of perspective on it while we were doing it 
And it was neat that, like, one, one thing that, that I thought was awesome was that um, somebody, we knew, I think we knew that bottom of the pile was a certain bar, and um, somebody on the first day or two that the record came out on social media knew what other song Gary referenced bottom of the pile the place I think it was in it was in sweet tater i think and uh yeah they mentioned going to the bottom of the pile when mitch was over when mitch ballard from bmi was over at the studio we were recording that song he brought that up too like he had seen some footage from like some old video where him and i guess probably that billy guy billy eldridge i guess is that guy's name yeah that was the co-writer on some of those uh were walking into this bar called bottom of the pile you know and it's interesting to see uh you realize, I realize at least, uh, how like in reality a lot of these songs were for Gary. Like this is just like he's writing his everyday <laughs> situation. Yeah. I mean, Touch of You, honestly, was you know, I mean that that's that song is is their life. Uh, bottom of the pile. He was going to that bar. Bottom of the pile. I mean, all that stuff was very real to Gary. You know, which makes it even heavier. Yeah, I think you mentioned it, but I just I want to make sure, like, Smooth Shot of Whiskey, you said, like, that was for a uh, another collab record between him and Dean Dillon. So I, I'm assuming, like, it wasn't much to make that into a duet with between you and Mark, right? Yeah, that was kind of a, that was kind of a, uh, uh, that was just obviously going to happen. I mean, like, I knew I wanted to cut that song. And uh, and it was pretty much set to go. I'm not sure. I, I can't remember if it was Dean singing on the demo or not. And originally, I had reached out to a friend of mine who's friends with Dean, and uh, that was even in play for a little bit. Was to get Dean to maybe sing his part on that. Uh, I think we kind of went through a couple of different how we were going to do that, who we were going to get to do it. Um, but it was interesting. I mean, and and Mark really like. I had known that Mark had been pitched some of these things and because uh, we're both friends with John Burris and he was kind of the one that was taking it around town. And uh, it all kind of just made this made sense to have this full circle thing happen, you know, especially with the whole dichotomy of us in Midland anyway. Like, let's put all that bullshit to rest. Yeah. You know, and like it, it just it just it really seemed like a, a, a good move uh, on a lot of levels. And uh I think it's perfect, and, 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 and Mark was excited because Mark had actually, I guess the guys in Midland had done some co-writes or something with Dean a year or two ago, and so he had a lot of kind of perspective on that, and he was really excited to do the Dean part on that. And then wasn't, uh, was it the CMAs or ACMs or whatever that, um, uh, what you call it, actually had Gary's hat and wore it? Yeah, well, yeah, so Jess, Jess Carson from Midland, um, he has become also very, very good friends with Shannon Stewart. And they talk, they, hell, they probably talk more than me and her do. Um, and he had, he had gone down there, I guess, to Fort Pierce, Florida, and hung out with them for a little bit, and she gave him Gary's, like, iconic black felt hat. Like, it's his now. And he, did, he wore it on those CMAs that year. And I think that, you know, and I, you know from the rumor mill, they have... Uh, Jess has taken some of those notebooks I was talking about. Obviously, uh, he has taken some of those too, and I think they might be trying to write some stuff based on some of those notebooks too. So, obviously, there's a mutual love for Gary Stewart uh, between both bands. So, you know, and that that totally makes sense. <laughs> yeah, the 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 Gary Stewart Renaissance. You know, right, that's right. Um, 
the hat. Like what I'm thinking about that is like, um, I wonder what what size was he? <laughs> you know, like <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. It'd be it'd be really funny almost... if like she thought about giving it to him and then like realized he was like a you know a, an eight and a half or something. <laughs> yeah, I should have asked him what size that hat was and if he had to have it resized or not. Because <laughs> I'm a because I'm a seven and a quarter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, what, what's, uh, hey, um, uh, you know how how is this like? You know, obviously, this has been time in the making, getting this done. But like, how how much has it made you self reflect on your own songwriting? Well, quite a lot. Um, you know, I've I've been in this weird <clears throat> songwriting phase, I guess now since before cheap silver where I wasn't really sure what I was supposed to be doing. (laughs) Like, I don't know if I'm, you know, if I'm the thing about those Gary things is like, he can say so much, you know, in a single breath and it's all very simple. His concepts are simple. And I always, I find myself a lot trying to overthink those things. I'm not sure if I want to do just a straight honky tonk thing or whatever. So, but to me, like, that gave me more confidence in the fact that it can be done in a, in a smart way. And, uh, you know, I, it's, affected, it's affected what I've been writing during quarantine. Because, I mean, basically, I've just been writing and making this record since we've been off. So those things are obviously going to um, leak into each other, you know. This episode is sponsored by Smith Iron and Design. It's owned and operated by one of my good friends, Aaron Smith, and his dad, Sonny. As the name implies, Smith Iron and Design specializes in creating custom metal and woodwork. They have a vast array of metal signs that are perfect wall decor that'll tie our room together. They design everything from welcome signs to family crests, flags, and Texas cutouts. They have a series of these metal wreaths that are perfect for your front door and you are able to change them out depending on the season? Are you a sports fan? Well, there's nothing better than having a giant logo of your team on the wall of your den or office. When it comes to signage, the possibilities are really endless. What you should really do, though, is head over to smithironanddesign.com to get a look at their vast portfolio. That's smithironanddesign.com. I'll throw a link into the show notes as well. They don't just do signs either. Some of the smaller items are custom bottle openers and keychains. Then they also have bookshelves, TV stands, nightstands, and fire pits. You know, it was about a year ago, Aaron built me a custom shelf. I needed something new to store some of my vinyl and everything I had come across. Either the shelves weren't big enough for LPs, or it looked too bland or cheaply made, or to be perfectly honest, too expensive. So I wound up talking with Aaron, and about a week later, I was able to pick up this custom shelf unit that's just been amazing. It's incredibly sturdy, has a bit of a rustic feel. In my opinion, one of the best parts was just having so much control in the process. You can get them as tall as you want with the shelves at the perfect depth and length. Again, for me, this was for storing vinyl, so they had to be a certain height and depth. I've been thinking about getting a custom bookshelf companion piece soon as well. Now, for the most part, they primarily serve the Lubbock area and the South Plains. 
but for some of their smaller pieces, they're able to ship nationwide as well. Again, smithironanddesign.com. Now back to the show. It's obviously such a weird time right now, and, um, you know, I, it, it's a bit, but it's been interesting to see different artists, how they've, um, what they've, they've gone to to replace playing shows daily or touring or you know what I mean like it's it's been interesting to see what's been what they've been able to occupy their time with to find something that's a bit of a routine until we're able to get back into you know normal life yeah I don't know um I don't I still don't know how we're dealing with that <laughs> like I, I mean now that this record that we did that I mean that was like my focus it kept me in the game you know, it kept me like, okay, we're still creating this content. And like, you know, now that it's done, you know, I, I feel like I'm twiddling my thumbs a little bit again. And, I'm, and I, had, I had the faucet open on writing some stuff. And, uh, you know, that has kind of closed off since I got into the back into like now I'm in an album cycle again. So um, the same way that touring takes that away from me a little bit. So it's 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 hard to find the balance between what I'm actually focusing on and what I'm not. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm very confused right now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, how about you, Adam? Because obviously like, um, you're producing, you, you make records with people, obviously like you were focused on this, but what, what is it now? Like, what are you, how, I guess, were you doing other things during this time? Yeah. It's it's so funny because it's like I had little mixed projects that I was going to be doing anyway uh, from the road because I got to the point where I was like mixing from the road and then I would bring it into the studio on my, you know, a couple days at home and uh, and finish it out and make sure I was cool with everything and then, you know, send them off. And so immediately, like when all this happened, you know, I was just like, well, I'm still mixing records. So, you know, I'll finish those off. And then, uh, and then we got into this, and which basically just kind of for a month and a half, that was everything I was eating and breathing, and just like we have to get this record done. And and it's for as hands-on as I am um, with everything I produce, but especially with the moon pies, and uh, it was so weird to now suddenly be doing all that stuff from the phone, you know, and and Mike and I just being on the on calls for hours just like well what if we do this and let's try this and play this part and you sing this and do that and let's oh hey put a demo part of this down so we can get Catlin to do this so Zach can harmonize it on steel and you know all that back and forth and so um and and then I've been finishing some things where I've gotten Mike a part of them too you know and, and Zach and you know just playing parts and singing parts and everything with some of that stuff, but now it's like, okay, well, this is done, and, and obviously we're in this world of, um, of like, some press things and everything, and, and uh, we've, got, we've got some things lined up for some future articles and stuff that involve the family more in the process of, of even before us being involved in this with, you know, it, w- when this record came out, all of a sudden a lot of people came forward with, where the demos were before they were transferred and, you know, before they even got to us. And that's turning into a whole other story um, that some people are going to be writing about. And um, so as we're doing that, uh, we're already like, 
well, we don't know how we're going to tour, so we might as well just get back in the studio. So, you know, at some point in the near future, I know we'll get back as a band together, you know, and and uh, make another record that way. And I'll mix some more records for people. And, and you know, I'm working on just two other little projects I'm producing right now. But um, and Mike's, you know, involved in those things, too. And um, with Mike and I not just doing the Moon Pies, but, you know, uh, Mike and I manage Zach Wilkerson. And so besides him dropping a record right as everything falls apart, um, we, you know, we're in the discussing his his next album and everything and how we're going to do that with him. And so we're just we're, without having anything on the books, really, you know, we just have to keep creating. And that's kind of what's in our blood is just like, OK, we just can't stop, you know, and so. Or, you know, I, I'm afraid to I'm afraid to, to look at myself and Mike if we ever did decide to stop. <laughs> like, who are we? <laughs> it's like we just got to keep. Well, I mean, on. quite honestly, it's it's been like for me since we since we wrapped on this record and now we're doing this like, you know, kind of a press thing. I'm like, <laughs> I, this is the first time I think during that we've since we've been on lockdown or whatever that I'm I really don't know what to do with myself. Like, uh, like I've all, you know, I've wanted to get back on the road since it started, but now it's like a whole nother animal to me. It's like now, okay, we're, we have this, uh, now I just want to go out and play. Like we, we, I feel like we made a record, so I'm ready to go do that. But at the same time, if we're not going to be able to, I mean, that's why we're going to, you know, hopefully go in the studio in two weeks and make another thing. I mean, I've been writing, so we have some songs. So <clears throat> I just, ha you know, I have to do something uh, productive, I feel like. So since the record's been over, it's just searching for what whatever that's going to be next. Yeah, the um, one of these interviews I did, um, I did one with Emily Scott Robinson, and she mentioned like, you know how that I, th th she thought people were frustrated with the quarantine mainly because if they they tie so much together with their self worth if they're producing something, and if you're not making something that if you're not working, uh, regardless if it's, you know, making music or writing, uh, articles or your, you know, pay, paving roads or whatever, if you're not, if it, if you don't have nothing to show, you kind of feel like there's this, you know, this worthless aspect to your self-esteem. And I think that's like incredibly true. It's like a, such an insight on the human psyche. And so, yeah, like it's, it's such a, I don't know, like the people that I've talked with most have, um, that have been doing better during all this have been the ones who have, you know, uh, found something else to do, you know, and, and try to fill their time doing something else, regardless of what it is, but something that they can say at the end of the day, oh yeah, I mowed the yard and I planted this garden and I did this, or you know what I mean? Like whatever that case is. Dude, I'm I'm a hundred percent on board with everything you just said there. Yeah. Like, to me, <clears throat> I, I you know like I have to get this high off of something, right? So like it used to be just ninety minutes, you know, like <laughs> you know being on the road or whatever, and then it became making this record or like now I'm remodeling the stuff in my house and like I was telling Adam before like earlier today, like I need to go to Home Depot today and get some more building materials because I'm out of stuff to do here, <laughs> and I can I can hardly go to sleep. Uh, having not accomplished anything, no matter what that may be, whether it be involved with this, 
you know, or, or finishing up some remodel project in my house or something. I, I, I just, I just walk around like a zombie in my house if I haven't accomplished something that day and gotten that high of, of that. So, uh, I, I totally agree with, with that. Yeah. Like that, that restlessness that just kind of sets in after sitting down for a couple of days or something. Um, Adam, what I was going to ask you, I wanted to go back to was obviously this record right here is a moon pies record, but it's also a Gary Stewart record. Like what kind of like mindset have, did you kind of go in with thinking like, you know, this has to be both at the same time while also like just not necessarily, um, being one over the other was it, how, how, I guess like, how did you approach this knowing that it that it had like these this dual purpose in a way well i think the the biggest thing is that you know at least at least since steak night you know and i know before that even like you could always tell the influence of of gary on the moon pie sound anyway and so it was just it was just it, it felt natural to just take these things like you know obviously some of the demos had like some head licks that we copped or you know took parts of but then there was a lot of demos that had nothing you know and, and we brought together but we were always like we know the moon part of the moon pie sound is just the that harmonized steel and guitar and sometimes three harmonies going on and stuff like that you know and the play back and forth of phil's and mike's vocal and stuff um i think the biggest thing with this was and and i got to witness it not just as you know producing with the guys but you know as a fan was i i think the biggest thing was mike's voice just i think that brought it all together because i, I feel like he was really pushing himself and i felt like in cheap silver he really pushed himself and growing as a vocalist but i think on this you know he was really taking the influence of of gary's demos because if there's one thing that you know even if gary didn't have quite like where he was going lyrically and stuff it's you know he still had that passion behind his voice and that that hurt and that crying and stuff and i feel like that was probably the biggest like that was the bridge you know it was just like okay the moon pies here's the band here's us doing what we're doing but you know, here's Mike coming in and just knocking out of the park, like the emotion of the vocals, you know, and 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 also that uh, work ethic of Mike's of just like, you know, he would send me, you know, six of the songs we already had kind of cut and, and done vocally. But and we were already in that world. But um, now it was just like Mike would send me tracks and then he'd be like, you know what? Last night I sang two more passes, listen to him and see what you think and try this and. And so I think, if anything, that was that was the biggest, like, that was the bridge of making that, you know. And, and the other side of it, too, is that we're not a band that always has to play our songs to begin with. It was always like, you know, every record has, you know, co-writes with other people or, or just songs of other people. So it's nothing for, for us to go in and just be like, okay, this is how we're going to do this song. So... You know, it's like, okay, here's a demo of somebody else. It just happens to be, you know, the King of the Honky Tonks' demo, you know, not not just our buddy's demo, you know. Yeah, and sonically, you know, like we had like, um, you know, Zach running his steel 
through the Leslie and, you know, using that, that stuff like that. And that kind of also helped, I think, to sonically put it a little bit more in that direction as well. You know, like having those, like there was a couple of times early on when we recorded like Touch of You, um, where it was almost hard for me to like, because sonically it sounded so similar for me to tell like his original cut of that song and, <laughs> and the opening licks to ours, you know what I mean? So uh, I think there was some, there was some conscious thought about, about sonic sounds on it as well. Yeah, like it's 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 just I guess it's you know you've you've seen plenty of these kind of projects in the past where you kind of go oh it feels like they kind of meld this in but like you know it, it feels like you guys were so you know um, I don't want to say delicate but like you were very attentive of to every aspect to make it right and I, I think like that's why people have been. Um, so passionate about it you know because like you've obviously seen so many people you're just talking about like the spotify numbers and stuff you know um you you, you see so many people just passionate about this kind of project and i think it feels good to me to have obviously like his daughter who is really about it but like these guys that are coming forward that played on some of the demos and stuff that are excited about it that's what that's what gets me you know adam that's a that's a big part of it right there is just like seeing the people that have like i've you know i've gotten his old tour his old tour manager you know reached out and contacted me and then um who signed him at high tone records came out you know and all these people are coming out and not just not just that you know hey we're glad that people are talking about gary but you know that they're they're happy with what we've done and and you know not just bringing people you know getting people to notice Gary again but also like the care and the passion we had behind the songs and I think part of it for us is that you know our name is on it so we are always going to give the best we can to to whatever song we're recording you know and so and in knowing also that you know you never know which ones we're going to be playing live so we want to make it something not just that we love to listen to but something that we love to play and, you know, and, and so and how it'll work in a live show and everything. So it's just like, you know, we definitely, you know, we don't I don't I don't think you could ever accuse us of mailing anything in. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Now, obviously, I, I don't think we ever talked about even though we've done five podcasts, Mike, I don't think we ever talked about <laughs> cheap silver. Um, obviously, that was pretty tight lipped. And that's like such a, a specific idea. Um, what, I guess like, you know, where did that initially come from too? Like, where was that as a, when were, when was those early conversations of like, Hey, let's try and do something like this. Adam, you're my timeline, man. Uh, <laughs> so here, <laughs> here, it's so funny when I realized like where we were at certain points. So we knew we were going to release steak night in the beginning of February of 18 and we had just cut the Bauman duet and it was right around Christmas of 17 and so we had the timeline of okay Steak Night's going to come out here and uh, somebody sent me a video of um, Sinatra in the recording studio Uh, it's on YouTube but in the studio recording uh, when I was 17 so I immediately sent it to Mike and Mike 
said, oh, yeah, I've seen that and told me about a little show that he did. Um, where was it when you had the little string section? Uh, I did a white horse show and uh, with this guy, the steel player, uh, Bob Hoffner, and he had, like, strings and horns. And he did, like, I think he was doing, like, every other Wednesday or something for, like, a month or two. And uh, I would just go up there and sing Sinatra songs and, uh, and, and like, Mac the Knife and, like, all kinds of cool shit. And, and so, it, like, I've always been really into that, man. It gave me that bug, you know. So it's funny because then it's like, you know, we were like, oh, well, we should just do a, a record with strings, you know, and just completely do that, that style of country record, you know, get that Glenn Campbell influence and stuff. And so... I walked out of my mix room and went into the main studio and I mentioned it to, to Dave Percival, the, my partner and everything in the studio. And, uh, he was just like, well, why don't we just do it at Abbey road with the London symphony? And I was just like, okay. And so I just went over to, I called Mike back and I was like, Hey, Dave thinks we should do this. And we were like, well, let's get a quote on price. And so we, Dave called the studio and, you know, he's got a, a great relationship with Abbey Road. He's been making records there for a long time. And so he, we got the prices together and we looked at it and, you know, we kind of were like, okay. And uh, we said, screw it, let's do it. And we knew um, the band was going over to France to play um, that summer, the end of July of 18. And so that was our timeline. I think, yeah, I think we're good if we have a timeline we know when we need to get things done and so uh then we released steak night and steak night started getting good press and the touring got better and so we made sure that we put a week aside uh i think it was in it was either march or may of 18 and we sat in the studio just the band and i and and we wrote the record because we knew dave needed time to write the string arrangements and uh, so we basically demoed the entire record. And then we were changing stuff. I mean, we were changing stuff until the very last minute. But um, and adding songs and taking away songs and, you know, stuff that we felt like didn't really fit the theme of the album. And uh, we just did that. And, um, you know, then it almost seemed like we got the record finished, but Steak Night was still going strong. And so... We kept on touring and doing press and stuff for Steak Night. And then, you know, we eventually, you know, once, you know, Cheap Silver was done. And then we started working on this Gary record as we were planning on how to actually release Cheap Silver. <laughs> it was like, so I think uh, there's one thing. We're always ahead of ourselves. Like, we always have something in our back pocket ready to go, you know. And so really when we when we picked a date for cheap silver to to come out which was hilarious because we we picked the date and we had the stuff worked up with um uh joe hudak at rolling stone to write the article for it to come out the second that the record drops and then of course there was a like all of a sudden tyler childers you know makes the big announcement that his record's coming out and so there was a quick little like you know, should we move? And it's like, no, who cares? You know, we're going to be at a festival with Tyler anyway. Like, literally, the buses were parked next to each other. So we're just like, okay, let's just keep it. Because we knew it was going to release at Pickathon. And we knew the night before was going to be, like, the dance hall show we do. And the next day, the day of the release, we were going to be on the main stage. So since we knew all that, we're like, okay, well, the the dance hall show at Pickathon will be the... Uh, will be the the last of the steak night tour 
quote unquote. And then when we go out and play the play the main stage the next day, well, that'll be the first of the cheap silver. Yeah, like it's you know that record. You know, you mentioned Frank, obviously, and Glenn Campbell, but you know, there's like that. The first thing I thought of was like the. Uh, I can't even think what record is what what, uh, what record it is the uh, the George Strait one with drinking champagne, where he's like in the tux. Yeah. Thought about that. Yeah, in the tux. Yeah, yeah. and then um, like fucking James Bond. I mean, like, is this is that <laughs> this record not like a James Bond record? <laughs> you know. <laughs> I think we did talk about the James Bond thing because we were looking up uh, who had cut James Bond. <laughs> <laughs> theme songs yeah and didn't didn't you show me one adam that was like johnny cash that they never got used? oh johnny cash's thunderball like johnny cash and it's on yeah. it's on youtube <laughs> you can find that you just look up johnny cash thunderball and that was going to be the original theme of the thunderball movie <laughs> <laughs> just like and then the other one was the radiohead one that they eventually put out yeah you know but that was supposed to be uh i forget which movie that was for that was specter yeah but and that's I mean, that's an awesome theme. <laughs> yeah. Like, it, every, I guess every few years, somebody does like a, a new Bond theme ranking. And it's like, <laughs> guys, um, it's almost exactly the same every time. It's, it's <laughs> we know which ones are great and which ones are, you know, we're going to skip yeah. over. I don't know. I've always, I, I think it's always, it's a little underrated. I kind of like the, the Jack White, Alicia Keys one. As far as, like, new ones go. I still love that one, and especially, like, I remember getting it. Like, I got the 45 of it, you know, and stuff, and I heard a lot of people complaining about it, and I just thought it was awesome. And then when I saw the movie, it was like he took, in that song, he took so many of the quick musical score themes and just made that into a lick that was part of it, you know, that was just a part of the song. And I was just like, now this, this makes this theme even more badass because... You know, Jack actually took stuff from the from whoever wrote the score and put that in to the arrangement of his song. And I was like, I don't know many of the themes that actually went that hardcore into producing a theme for it. Normally, it's just like this really lush arranged song. And uh, and Jack went. Do you do you think that do you think that uh, it was the London Symphony on uh, Live and Let Die? I bet it was. <laughs> I just, that just crossed my mind. <laughs> I'm just like, dude, what if some of those players were the ones that actually played on that? Like, oh, my God. Right. <laughs> you just blew my mind on that one. That was the, I read about that one. That was the first, that was the first time they had used, like, a rock song as the, uh, as the theme. Really? Was that one? Was that one? Mm-hmm. Dude, now I'm going to have to look that up. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, honestly, yeah. yeah. I, it would have to be like the London Symphony because you know it was cut at Abbey Road. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I Okay, so I also love the uh, the Duran Duran one. Room to a Kill. <laughs> yes, I was going to say, I was trying to remember which one it was. The, the, the only thing is I'm not like a Roger Moore fan. I think those are like too, I don't know, too cheesy. Uh, I'm... I don't know. That's just not my. I, I I watched like, I guess like all of the Bonds over a couple of months, and I was just like, man, are we? Can we get over these right here? Like, hey, yeah. know, give me the Golden Eye, please. 
I'm a Connery man. <laughs> oh yeah, of course. Like Connery, um, but like <laughs> Mike, you're around my age. Like we, or and Adam, you're a little bit older. But I mean, like Pierce Brosnan, that's like our Bond, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Our, our era of yeah, Bond. Yeah, I mean, it really is. And I mean, honestly, you said Goldeneye. Goldeneye. You know, the was that N64. Yeah, it's a Nintendo 64. That's that game. I mean, that was that was the game. Like we all played that game. <laughs> it was the best first. Time. This episode is sponsored by Wicker's Mesquite Smoked Jalapeno Jelly. It's owned and operated by my buddy Wes Wicker, who makes the jelly in small batches for the best quality and freshness. He smokes the peppers with mesquite and uses pure cane sugar to make the jelly. What you get is this great blend of smoky, sweet, and spicy. It's addictively savory. For those uninitiated, Wickers is a great addition to any chef's kitchen. Part of what makes Wickers so great is just how versatile it really is. For starters, it makes a great meat glaze. Throw it on a batch of hot wings, use it on some pork ribs, some pork chops, really whatever you can think of. Eat it on biscuits, cornbread, bagels, or toast. Throw it on a ham or turkey sandwich. Another super simple but effective way is to get some cream cheese, throw some Wickers on top, and then grab your favorite cracker. Wickers is currently stocked at a handful of places in Lubbock and on the South Plains, as well as some Fort Worth and DFW locations. But the easiest way to get your hands on a jar is to head over to WickersTX.com. That's W-I-C-K-E-R-S-T-X.com. I'll throw a link into the show notes for good measure. They currently come in two varieties, original and now hot, if you need just a little bit more kick in your bite. You can order anything from one jar to a case of 12, whatever fits your needs. Again, that's wickerstx.com. Okay, back to the show. I don't want to go too far down that tangent, but like, have you tried playing like old video games recently and like realized... (laughs) how bad you are like you're like just there's no way to like play them well i got one just right before we were right before we got off the road before all this i bought a nintendo switch and they've got the whole like family whatever nintendo and super nintendo thing where you can download and just play all these old games and like even playing super mario world i'm like man i suck (laughs) like i'm like why is this so hard i forgot you know it's like yoshi was easy to control now he's not (laughs) Yeah, I've got like an old Super Nintendo hooked up still. And um, <laughs> I was playing with some friends one time and they're like, man, like, are you going to break that controller? Because like, I, w- I guess like I was just like smashing so hard on the buttons and I was like, <laughs> these are just old controllers. Like this is, I don't know what the, t- this is what it sounds like. These aren't Xbox yeah, controllers yeah, yeah. that are have like, you know, uh, <laughs> have like smooth uh I don't know, button pushing, <laughs> smashing shit. You got to push harder. You got to push harder on those. <laughs> yeah. Or like when, when you're trying to go left. And so like, then you like move your entire controller that way too, at the same time. <laughs> and it's, yeah. it's hilarious too. Cause like, I know this, like this last run, you know, we had the newest Grand Theft Auto on the Sprinter and everything, you know? And so everybody was just playing, like trying to get, you know, just doing different, doing different, um, um, uh, stories and stuff like that, you know, and we were all just trying to get a bunch of the game completed. But then it was just like, then I would switch over to my Switch or something like that late at night, and I'm just like, this is just so weird. Like, playing these old games is just so, like, you just got so used to all the stuff you can do 
like on an Xbox controller, and then like even on the Switch, it's just like a, a, a two buttons and a and a pad, you know. And so it's just like, man, like we used to play games like this. <laughs> well, probably by the time we start touring again, the new Xbox will be out. So we'll yeah, I know, yeah. <laughs> I just want everybody to get Switches so we can all play Mortal Kombat 11 together. <laughs> did you guys uh, did you guys get into Red Dead Redemption 2? I was in, I was into the first one. I never made it to the second I, I one. I didn't get into the second one. You know, one. my my thing with my thing with the Xbox and a lot of that stuff, especially when we're on the road, is we have problems with, like, because now you have to pretty much download the whole game onto your system. And, like, that's really hard for us on the road <laughs> to be able to do that. So I kind of get lost in any, you know, I'm lost on anything that I have to, like, you know, put the whole game on there anymore. I wish I could, I wish it was old school and I could just put the damn disc in and we could play the game. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, with, with two, like, you had to do, it's, it's so funny because it's like, you know, people are like just loving everything about, oh, you have to do all this stuff. Like you have to eat and you have to like make sure you feed your <laughs> horse and like clean your horse. And you got to like, you know, just you have to do like all this stuff to make it where you know you got to go get your hair cut if you want it to be nice. All this stuff like that. You got to practice um, running so you can he, he has better like endurance when when he's running and stuff. And it's like. So you mean like like real life? Like this is taking forever for me to do one damn thing. Like, yeah, like I don't know. <laughs> I absolutely loved it, but like you know, at the same time, I'm like, oh my god, like can we can we get over this a little bit? Like some of this doesn't need all like all of the nuance of of, of actual life. life. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't need a I don't need a digipet. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, man! Uh, <laughs> that reminds me. That there was a great episode of The Office where, like, they had one of those like open video game things, and Dwight was just the same exact like Dwight just made Dwight, except he could fly. <laughs> but he was still the assistant to the regional manager. He was still like all the. He was exactly what he was in real life, but he could fly. <laughs> um, <laughs> to get back to. Uh, I guess the music. <laughs> uh, you know, one of the things that I've always, uh, I've liked about your writing, Mike, but it's something that I feel like it's, it's A, it's developed more in this specific way, but also like the more you listen, the more you kind of get those, uh, like the, the self-referencing meta moments. Um, I, I, to me, like the biggest one is probably like on Fast as Lightning. You, uh, yeah. you literally mentioned like, the making of the record cheap silver, like on the record. Um, like, I guess like where, like what, when did that like cross your mind to do something like that? Um, you know, that, that song specifically is pretty much the whole story of that, uh, few months, man. Like all of those things I mentioned that story, like, you know, that, 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 that song was one that we, I had no idea what that was we just basically came up with that idea on the fly while we were doing the pre-production on that record so that song was born completely like i didn't even have like a phone idea or anything prior to that so that song was born in pre-production and then i was writing it as we were recording it i wrote some of it while we were in france um i wrote i wrote a couple of lines on it after we had gotten back and sang some of those other lines so like um, that's definitely the most meta song I've, I've ever written, but I mean, it's it's it felt right to almost explain the record or our situation 
kind of end song on the record. It's such an off the wall album anyway. Maybe that song, you know, in my mind, maybe that song can give some perspective on how it all came to be and and kind of the story of the record really is is kind of all written in that song. There's a few like I mean there's so many different like lost verses of that song and and really the whole thing started I forget what song we had just completed demoing out in the studio but you know because we were all sleeping at the studio and everything just crashing there and in a in a in a uh, drunken comedy moment Catlin just goes I'm gonna get a tattoo and one arm is gonna say fast as lightning and the other one is gonna say twice as frightening and then it was just like hey we should write a song about that and so we did yeah we need some more songs so there's one so th- there's one and we'll just make it a burner you know it'll have just a bunch of fast stuff and uh, let's change keys a bunch in it okay cool and uh, and always get back to the, the main key and so it's just like, yeah, I know part of that was right, you know, like one verse was written right after Braun Brothers. After it was like, record the record. Yeah. You guys flew to Montana to do a turnpike show. I stayed the day, the last day to record the London Symphony. And then I flew to Boise to meet everybody at Braun Brothers. And then we had a breakdown on the bus leaving Braun Brothers. And that's how kind of like. You know, that's that, you know. And we got stuck in us and we got stuck we got stuck in Salt Lake City. Yeah, and like that that that's that verse was written uh like three days after we had recorded the record. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's genius just uh you know, with everything going on and how you know, and the whole first time over there in France and stuff like that. Like I loved when Mike added the uh French line at the very end of the song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I just learned how to say that. So <laughs> I might as well sing it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, like I, I always when I first heard that song, you know, you when I when I first put on records, I almost always just put it on and start doing something else, just because, you know, I, I, like it's to me like it, it needs to marinate. And so, you know, third, fourth time around, and of course, like this record's like eight songs long, so it's easy to just like get back into it again. Um, so it was probably about like that third or fourth time that I was like, man, this, this song like sounds like it's, yeah, it, like this song sounds like exactly like it's about like this record or something. And it's, <laughs> it's just something that like, you know, obviously no one really ever does because uh, it's kind of hard to make a, a song about a record um, when it's on that record, <laughs> sure. you know, like, yeah, so there was a lot of there was a lot about that whole process of that record that was like you know new to all of us like how we were doing it and our timeline for it and everything like that so that's just kind of another moment of where that was like new territory like trying to I had never really gone in to something before and recorded the whole thing without really having a completed finished lyrical idea before so it was almost an experiment, you know, uh, with, which thankfully kind of worked out. And we got a burner. Yeah. <laughs> that we, we needed a burner on that record. <laughs> hey, by the way, I realized, uh, Speed, you are talking about it's only eight songs. Uh, the Gary record is 10 songs, and it's like 20 seconds shorter. <laughs> <laughs> That's because it's a real country record, and all the songs are two minutes yeah, long. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, like that's something that's really interesting, I guess, in just music in general. People think that 
the longer a song is, it must mean that it's um, like more serious or more important. And like sometimes, you know, like just go listen to like a Buddy Holly song. Those are like, you know, there's some songs of his that are like a minute 58 or you know what I mean? Like just because it's long doesn't mean, you know, it's it's the most important song. Sometimes you can just say something in. You know, short and sweet. Well, that's uh, that. That makes me that makes me think of that thing that Johnny Bush says now about uh, Whiskey River. It's like he called Willie and told him, "Hey, I wrote this song. I think you're gonna like it, uh, but I need it needs another verse in it or whatever." And Willie just wrote him back and said, "No, you said everything you needed to say. Just sing it again." <laughs> I was like, "All right, that makes sense." <laughs> that's it. Yeah, it's just like sometimes you just don't need to overthink it. All you have to do is just you know. Yeah. That's it. We said it. Everything we needed to say and. In two and a half minutes. <laughs> yeah, you you mentioned Johnny earlier. You you guys obviously did that "Say It Simply" collab, right? Just you know, a couple of weeks back. Um, is that part of a bigger project? What what's like? What's how did that start coming up uh, around? Um, I had I had written that song with Johnny in mind back before the Mockingbird record, and uh, and like I you know. I just I wanted to I was really I was listening to a lot of Johnny Bush at the time and I always have I mean I've listened to him since I was a little kid like that's one of my earliest memories is like hearing Johnny Bush and my dad always used to do this Johnny Bush impression all the time uh and so like he's like ingrained in me and so that song was kind of me like letting that stuff out and you know I'd always told people like I wrote this song for Johnny Bush you know and that's kind of like this weird way to say you know it's like I didn't write it for him like I didn't write this song for Johnny to record, but I wrote this song in his in his style, and uh, so that basically my dad knew that story, and he's been friends with Johnny for forever, and um, he had spoken to him about that song or whatever, you know. And, and my dad's always like, my dad's also one of these people that's like, you need to get Steak Night cut by George Strait, and I was like, well, I don't just I don't think that's gonna be on the cards. <laughs> He's like, well, that's what you need to do, you know. So he's always pushing those kind of things <clears throat> on me. But since he was friends with Johnny, I was like, yeah, here's the song, man. You can send it to him or whatever. You know, I'm not thinking anything's going to happen with that. Um, but then I do that song swap with Johnny, and I bring it up to him in person, and I and I play the song in front of him. And uh, at that point, I think he was pretty much on board with it. And uh, just one day out of the blue, I got I got an email that had his vocals for the whole song. on it. He just sang the whole thing. And uh, I was like, well, man, this is great, but I have no idea what I'm going to do with this. <laughs> like, I, this song came out, like, three years ago, and, like, you know, it was just it was just kind of up in the air. Like, there was really no rhyme or reason to it, or, but it was awesome. And it was, like, something that I just loved to have um, for posterity, I guess. Um, and then it just seemed like, man, it, you know, we wanted to put something out during this time, and we had all this stuff together, and me and Adam had been talking about putting it together for a long time, and I think we just found the, you know happenstance to 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 make it happen and uh we cut you know new guitars and stuff like that on it and uh and you know it's it's now it's out in the world and i'm i'm just really proud of that thing and you know for me i've i just you know it's selfish like i just want to have that song of me and johnny singing together so you know it's not really part of a bigger idea it's just something cool and and i would like to at some point do like something similar and maybe release like a a 45 with like that on one side and maybe sing a song with somebody else another one of our songs or something like that 
uh, and re- recut that with somebody else, maybe do like a 45 split EP or something like that, you know, something cool with it. There's there's plenty of things we can do with it for now, but, uh, you know, yeah, for now it's just kind of uh, a cool thing that we got to put out during this time. Ultimately, I think what it comes down to, everything that we do is basically just like, hey, what would be something cool that we'd love to do? Okay, let's make a record like this. Like, that's basically all we ever really do, you know. What? Oh, man, this would be great to have this, you know. <laughs> put out a thing with with the actual vocal that you know johnny sent us okay well let's do it you know and we kind of do things for ourselves when it you know like the initial idea of everything is always just something like hey let's do this and so that way we've done it you know and then okay we've done it now let's do another type of record you know i agree i think that's kind of become like our mo is like trying to challenge ourselves to do something cool off the wall that we don't think it's possible yeah, yeah. <laughs> and just see if we just see if we can <laughs> yeah like that's i mean that's it's something that i know people get excited about because it's like you know every friday a million records are released and you know for better or worse a lot of them are just like Oh, it's time to make another record. Here's the next 10 songs I wrote. Or, you know, like, here's the 10 songs that I wrote out of the the 15. And these were the 10 best. And, like, this is just the record. This is just another record. This is just another record. And so I feel like people love... And, they're like, obviously, there's nothing wrong with that. Because that's, like, you know, you can have some great records that way. But I think that people appreciate and, like, fall in love with records that the the artist is excited about that you can tell that they aren't just making a record because they have to make a record for the time or whatever um you're making a record because like it's a a passion project you know yeah i mean i feel like you know your career is or your your career and your life are just you know i mean uh do the things that you want to do that are challenging that are going to be cool forever I think that's the way we probably look at it. Um, and just to have all those things. Like, I mean, you know, we've recorded this song with Johnny Bush. We have this Gary Stewart record. We recorded a record at Abbey Road. Like, those are things that we're going to live forever, not only for the public, but just, like, for our for our sake, something that we accomplished, I think, you know, rather than here's a record that we dropped, uh, you know, because it was record time, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, it's like I don't think we ever... Like there's when we record something, there's a reason, you know, there's always a reason why we're going in there, whether, you know, it's it's like, you know, Mike has something to say and 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 let's do it. You know, there's never a just a well, I guess and maybe because we never just rest, but there's never just a like, well, I guess we better put something out now. It's always just like we're excited to do this. So let's get in there and do it. OK, cool. This is awesome. OK, what's the next idea? OK, you know what? That's going to be a great idea. Let's do that. OK, let's start cutting this record. You know, it's always going to be that way, you know, I think. And, uh, you know, as long as we're as long as we stay that excited, I think, you know, we'll just be putting out records that, you know, that we'll want to play live and get out there. And I think and I think that's part of it, too, is just when a band is excited about a record and want to play it live, it's easier for the fans to get into it. You know, even if maybe sometimes that record isn't their favorite record, then kind of when they see it live then they go back and revisit the record. And then it's just like, okay, maybe I wasn't into that song until, I mean, I know I'm that way with some bands. Like there's certain times I've seen bands where I'm just like, 
Oh, wow. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you what, um, King of Limbs. When I first heard Radiohead's King of Limbs, I was like, this is cool, but I'm not really into it. And then I saw him at the Irwin Center. And then I re-listened to that record and was like, because they just played that entire record down. And I was just like, this record is genius. Like, all of a sudden, I just really fell in love with that record because I saw him live and I kind of understood where what, what felt was really loopy, loop heavy was actually two drummers playing. You know, and it was like, okay, this is now I get it. Now I totally understand what they were doing. Yeah. Um, this is okay. This is maybe like something that um, is unanswerable in a way. But um, obviously, you know, like it, the best, probably the best example is, is the, the Abbey Road record because there is that, the, the big strings and stuff like that. You know, there wasn't a whole lot of that happening in, in country music for a while. Um, do you see like that happening more because like you guys, did a record that way. Interesting, Adam. I never thought about that, but I feel like I feel like I've seen you know, and and even in you know whether it's mainstream country or Texas and stuff, it's like people would always make records that would have one song with a quartet, you know, or like oh we're really gonna add these lush strings on this song, you know, and it'll be really cool, and. Um, and I think, you know, and a lot of times it works and it's really neat, you know. Um, but I think you know, since we always just try to tell a story with our records, you know, I think it just made more sense, you know. Like those songs obviously were written. We wrote them to be able to play them without the symphony. But this, these were obviously written to be, you know, to make this symphonic record. Um, but I definitely think it might have opened up some ears and stuff of like, oh, okay, this can work when it's done right, you know. And maybe other people are. Gonna well, I, I think that I think there used to be more conceptual country records, and that really kind of stopped for a long time. But I definitely see that happening more now. Not, I'm not saying that's because we did something like that, but I I see conceptual country albums, you know, more often. Than I, than I did for the past, you know, 20 years, probably. We can't say that it's because we made a record like that, but, Thomas, you can say that it's happening because we made a record <laughs> like that. <laughs> yeah, um, because I, I, would, I would think that, like, you know, the... the maybe, maybe someone's not... Maybe all of a sudden there's not going to be, like, a bunch of records with these big O symphonies on them. Uh, these big lush string arrangements, but maybe like it means uh, whatever idea this songwriter, ex songwriter, had that thought that he thought uh, I probably can't do that just because you know people wouldn't get it. Maybe that like that gives them a an allowance, um, a little bit of like a boost in confidence, saying, "Oh, you know, actually, like that's not too far outside the box. Maybe I should try and develop this." Hopefully, so, hopefully that's hope, what, what, what it pushes. That. Yeah. Yeah. To me, I would. I mean, that would be great if that was the case because I mean, in, in like, there's a lot of records that come out that I'm not necessarily interested in because I've probably heard that record before. You know, so any any leeway that anybody can take in you know, making the making whatever record they want rather than whatever they think is going to be on the radio, I think is a positive. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, yeah, I, I just, I don't know. It's, uh, yeah, it's just like where, like I said, like some, like I think we've gotten into, yeah, like with any industry, like you sort, you sort of, I feel, once it figures out what, how the the engines work, right? What's the most streamlined way to do it? Then, you know, like it, all of a sudden, everyone starts doing that because that's the way it's done, and it's the easiest way. But then, you know, um, obviously that that can become stale. It breeds a a lack of, um, like I I don't know. Like sometimes, like what we need to do is is yawn and get that new that big uh fresh you know that a bunch of like fresh air into your lungs to go oh yeah we're waking up and like we can do other things you know what it's i hope so well i was gonna (laughs) i was gonna say like if there's one thing that came out of uh the ken burns country music documentary that doc series it was just like anytime it seemed like anytime something was popular nashville homogenized it and that became whatever was the new norm and then somebody else would come out with a record that was the complete opposite because it was their passion and then that would become the huge record again you know and it's just like that's how artists came out you know it was just like okay you know there was those guys that were doing the lush super lush nashville nashville the nashville sound and then all of a sudden you got you know willie you know, just putting out a raw record, you know, and stuff. And, and those are the, you know, we remember those records more, you know? Yeah. Like, you know, one of those things that it, it's, it's all related to it, but it's not like country. It's, but like, you remember when Mumford and Sons came out and all of a sudden it was like, you know, everyone went in and traded their electric guitars in for acoustics, <laughs> for acoustic guitars yeah. and banjos and, you know, we're going to play this way. And then all of a sudden, you know, four records in, they go quote unquote electric. And then I felt like all those bands were kind of like, well, now what are we going to do? You know, like, <laughs> well, I don't know. It's, uh, I don't know. It's, I was just going to say, I remember when we made, um, when we made the home record, um, the bluegrass Dixie chicks record, it was like, there was no real mainstream bluegrass except for, you know, Allison Krauss and Union Station. And that was, you know, and she, they only really had like crazy radio success when they kind of added, you know, some light drums and stuff in there and their stuff. Um, and I mean, I remember being told that this was just a fun little record we were making and, you know, nothing was going to come of it, you know, and then all of a sudden it was like, then bluegrass was okay again to be on radio you know, because of the success of that album, you know, and I, and I look back at that stuff and I'm just like, you know, again, another record that was not, you know, by the industry was just going to fall apart. And then it suddenly became, you know, a massive seller and radio. And the next thing you know, everybody was putting out more bluegrass influenced country records, you know, with banjo and stuff in it. Yeah. And obviously like that record also, you, I feel like there was a generation of of kids who looked at that record, looked at the liner notes, and then, you know, discovered Patty Griffin. And, like, from there, discovered all these other great folk songwriters of the of the, the 2000s and the 90s. And it just kind of, like, um, obviously that in, invigorated a, a boom of songwriters from 
all over the country. It, de- it definitely, it, I, th- I think it definitely did. I mean, it's just like, you know, I mean, Bruce's traveling soldier and stuff being on that, you know, it's just like, I, I feel like stuff like that, like really got people into the songwriters, you know, again, where, you know, I feel like now kind of country is straight away from that again and has gone into, you know, whatever bro country is and stuff like that. But there was a moment where it was just like, you know, and it probably just always comes in waves, comes and goes in waves, but it's just like, of those hardcore, like really good songwriters, you know, you know, writing, taking the passionate song of theirs and getting them combined with a fantastic artist that could, you know, really, really emote what the songwriter was trying to say, probably by just, you know, making the song about themselves, you know, I want that back again. But that's also why we have like, like we love Isbell and stuff so much. You know, and, you know, it's just like, I mean, he is he is telling stories and, you know, not to play in any other game than just writing these songs for himself and then going out there and singing them. And he's topping the charts. Yep. That's what people want. Yeah. The uh, the I mean, I guess we've had a little bit of the 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 chart topping. Um, I don't know, like what the Kenny Chesney. There was a little bit of uh, people up in arms about Kenny Chesney's <laughs> chart-topping success because of the the tour stuff. Yeah, because selling ticket the ticket bundles. But, yeah, the controversy on that was. <laughs> um, yeah. I don't know. Um, yeah. <laughs> I was gonna say like I, I we've been running here for about an hour or so, so a little over an hour. Um, I don't know. You guys have anything else to add? I, I think like we we got a pretty good, pretty good one here. Yeah, I feel like uh, for uh, my fifth appearance, that was pretty solid. <laughs> it's definitely, definitely, definitely good job there, Mike. Um, you know, the fun thing has been too. I, I think one last thing I want to say is just that, like, if there's one thing that all this like quarantine and stuff has done too, it's just, and I've got into it as a listener. And then, like, we have been trying it out and stuff like that. But it's like we we decided to make an actual band camp and start throwing, like, the the vinyl masters of past records and stuff, like doing the high-quality stuff and making PDFs of all the artwork and everything. And that's been, like, it's been a lot of fun of seeing other bands. And, that's, and I think that's more of, like, an indie rock thing and stuff. And, I mean, I'm a huge, uh, like, I'm a huge uh, uh, Run the Jewels fan. And, of course, they just dropped a record today. So that way everybody will know when this was recorded because they just surprised everybody with their full-length album early. Um, but they were really big into, like, they were they were putting out um, downloadable coloring books and stuff like that leading up to it. And it's just, like, you know, we've been taken to our band camp to be more of a, like, but fun things like that, you know. And if if, you know, if you're hurting, you know, just download it and enjoy but if you're not, you know, you can donate and stuff like that. But it's just been like throwing things out there that aren't going to be on your iTunes and Spotify and Pandora and stuff like that. You know, just like more fun little things, you know, and and also just and we started this with Cheap Silver. But, you know, randomly throwing little video clips on a, on a, a Spotify. So like certain songs you open up, you know, I forgot even which ones we've done so far, but it's just like. 
if you look at your like home screen, you know, we'll have random clips of the band doing stupid stuff, stupid shit everywhere, you know, but uh, just having fun with that and just seeing who notices it, you know, and, and it's funny. Like, so. well, I like the idea that like Bandcamp was something I used a long time ago when we first started the band to like basically it was my distribution, you know. But now it's become like a whole different animal for, for things like this, you know. So even if you are like, even Radiohead did it. Like they released like a bunch of st- the, like I think some of those lost tape Radiohead things were all on Bandcamp and stuff like that. So now it's kind of this other cool outlet for like, you know, music snobs, <laughs> which I consider myself to be. Yeah, and I- <laughs> but but you know it's it's cool it's cool to have that and it's cool that people are interested in it. Yeah, it's it's really shocking actually how many people like have been going to the page now and like buying certain things. I'm like, oh, this is awesome. Like, okay, so people are really into this, you know, and and watching our our follower base grow on that. I'm just like, okay, this is this has been a lot of fun. So we've been go racking our brains on, you know, little things, little new things that we can add to it, you know, and and mess around with and what can come out for future releases, what we can toss on there as exclusives and everything. Yeah, I, I, like I again, it's like it goes back to a band being excited about a record, but it's also like, you know, people. I, I think like the worst thing you can do is like um, dismiss your crowd as being like too dumb for something, or like just like being too basic. So it's like, yeah, they love T-shirts and records and CDs and stickers and caps, but you know they also love a whole lot of other shit like that is. Um, maybe not like that everyone's going to buy but like that certain people are going to buy and it's going to make whatever that is worthwhile for them you know so always love that kind of stuff and of course it always adds again it adds so much context to to a project or to a song or whatever i feel like mike and chase uh work so well together at coming up with cool ideas not just for the artwork and the, the theme of the artwork but um of what merch can go with the artwork after that and what cool little ideas, you know, can come together for that. And that's when one thing I love about them. They're like, I get random messages in the middle of the night from both of them. of just like, ah, we're thinking about doing this and, you know, trying this and doing that, you know, and, and even, um, as we, you know, this record came out so fast, obviously we weren't ready for uh, vinyl and stuff, but as we were putting everything together for vinyl, you know, as as excited as we are like we're we use hand-drawn pressing to do in dallas to do our our vinyl pressing and like immediately when i called joe fink up there about okay well you know we need to start talking about the vinyl you know he was the one that came up with that special edition color because he looked at the artwork he was studying the artwork just on spotify or itunes or whatever and he was like hey man that uh that teal turquoise like little strip we we can do that color really easy you know, and we were just like, okay, boom, there it is. That's going to be our special edition is, you know, we'll grab that color, you know. And and I love that, you know, we've kind of developed this team of just people that, you know, kind of they get excited with us, just as excited as we are. And then they jump into doing their part, you know, of just helping us out and, and seeing what our crazy vision is for each release. Yeah, yeah, of course, man. It's uh. Yeah, that till pops, man. It's just a, a gorgeous color there. And then, yeah, that was, of that course, was easy to yeah. And of course, I, I saw you guys have like shot glasses and stuff like that. I'm like, have there not been Mike and the Moon Pie shot glasses for 
<laughs> Ever? Or, I, I guess not. I don't I know. know right? It's like, uh, <laughs> gonna have a whole line of uh, of drinkware come out soon. Yeah, <laughs> we're just gonna have a whole cocktail set. <laughs> yeah, we yeah. should have done that for cheap silver. Damn it! <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> We've even got like yeah. There's there's some certain things that are rummaging around for some other releases that we'll have over the next probably two years and and messing around with with merch tie-in ideas like that you know yeah mike and the moon pie mouse pads and uh yeah because <laughs> everybody's got a mouse these days <laughs> hey folks that's it for this week of new slang be sure to check out other episodes this week with kyle nix and ruthie collins Go listen to Mike and the Moon Pie's Touch of You, The Lost Songs of Gary Stewart. Check out episode sponsor Smith, Iron and Design, as well as Wicker's Jalapeno Jelly. I'll see all of y'all next week.